different getting stuff to run on Twitter doesn't seem like it works so we're not on Twitter we're not on YouTube today either because I am in Twitter jail again I always say that I'm not Twitter jail I'm sorry I'm not in Twitter jail I just the Twitter feed's not working I'm in YouTube jail comma again and well how does that happen well you would think that if I went to uh, YouTube jail it would be for saying something controversial you know, recently, like just happened. And what I'm doing now, I'm checking to see if we are live on Rumble because that will be, in general, the more stable platform for most people with live streaming outside of YouTube. That doesn't seem to be working. A lot of things aren't working today. If you're out there watching me live today, I I just say that I I appreciate it. No, Rumble's rolling. So if you want to comment and you want me to see it, I will see your comments on Rumble and Facebook. I'll see Rumble over here and Facebook in the back office. With that, what are we going to talk about today on the Bitcoin Breakout and the Survival Podcast? We're up to episode 28 of Bitcoin Breakout episodes of TSPC Survival Podcast. This will be episode 3211. It is a Tuesday and December the 6th, 2022. We're going to talk about self-custody today. Uh, We ended up as we booked out the year. I lost a guest for this week. We didn't backfill that. I thought it'd be great because I did an article about two weeks ago on Bitcoin self-custody. And I think this is an incredibly important subject. I think it's one that we really need to talk about more than we do, even on my podcast, because basically we say, not your keys, not your coins. Don't hold on exchange. Then we go on and talk about all this other stuff. But something happened recently, and lots of people are losing their minds about it to the point where I'm actually tired of hearing about it. And, of course, I'm talking about the FTX bankruptcy meltdown and all these people losing all their money and what have you. But what it did do is it made a lot of people into Bitcoin maximalists, and it absolutely made people more aware of the need for self-custody because people lost billions of dollars when one exchange went under. And so I wrote this article about self-custody a few weeks ago. I spent all morning working on it instead of the things that I was supposed to be doing for the business in the podcast and what have you, because I, I really felt that it was important. And I broke it down into three standards. I called them the bronze standard, the silver standard, and the gold standard. And as I think about it, the bronze standard is so good, maybe I should call it like the silver standard, the gold standard, and the platinum standard or something like that. Because all of them are so much better than holding on Coinbase or any exchange. I don't care what exchange it is. Even the places that I think are the best and most above-board exchanges, Bitcoin-only operations like Swan Bitcoin – I don't want you to hold your Bitcoin long-term on SWAN. And we'll get into the reasons for that. Even though I trust the people at SWAN, I implicitly trust them to be better than the people at Coinbase or the people at Gemini or whatever it is. But there's still a lot of things. Even if the people that you're dealing with that own the exchange can be trusted implicitly, even if they do everything right, There's still other things that can put you at risk by holding on an exchange, even if they're not playing monetary games. But most of these exchanges are. So we're going to dig into that today. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. We're going to be talking a lot about sovereignty today, holding your own keys. We're going to talk a lot about security. 
and we're going to talk a lot about wallets. So I think it makes sense that we have two sponsors today that fit really well with that mission. Mission number one is Start9 Embassy Servers. Now, yes, with a Start9 server, you can run your own Bitcoin node. You can run your own Lightning node. You probably should. It's a great way to do things. But there's so much more that you can do. You can manage your, your passwords and have them accessible from anywhere without relying on a third party who could be a breach for like, oh, I don't know all your passwords, for instance. You can set up private end-to-end chat and then tell people, hey, just go download this app on your phone. And you can have absolutely 100% encrypted chat end-to-end between you and that other person. You can set up groups like that. And the beauty of it is it's not just that it's end-to-end encrypted. It's not going through somebody else's server. You're actually becoming the service provider and a ton more. And I'm very excited. I actually have a Start9 Embassy Pro, which is the larger server coming uh, very, very soon. And because they're a sponsor, we're going to sit down with the folks from Start9, complete walkthrough of setting up everything on it so I can be a better resource for you guys I, I am thinking about videoing a lot of it. I will have to edit the stuff that involves setting up nodes because when you set up a node, you display some information that people shouldn't see. I'll, just, I'll, I'll leave it at that. And so that would have to be edited and blacked out and what have you. But I would like to try to make it where anybody that gets their hands on a Start9 server can have a collection of videos and at least everything that's there now, you can just go set up and start using very, very step-by-step uh, walkthrough. So for those that maybe struggle a little bit with tech, we're working on that as well. But 9% off all of the embassy stuff if you're a member of my support brigade. Plus, there's other things going on. Like right now, there's a holiday sale. You can stack that discount. We're the only supplier that they have that has a discount code that can be stacked. And if you use the fold card, you can get an additional 9% off by buying Start9 uh, gift cards to pay for your order. Awesome, awesome stuff. Next up today, we're talking about uh, wallets today. What about the wallet that you carry around? Now, I really do carry a Ridge wallet. There it is right there for those watching the video, the few of you that there are today. I carry all my stuff in this wallet encased in titanium, protected from sniffers and things like that. They can steal identity off of RFID chips, but it's also just a great wallet. They have a ton of stuff now, like They even have a way that you can add a tracker so that if you lose your wallet, you can find it uh, using Apple trackers. Uh, And they have a ton of great EDC gear now as well. It looks great. It works great. Tons of cool stuff. 10% off if you're a member of the MSB. So make sure that you check out RidgeWallet.com if you've never done so before. Again, especially if you're a member of my discount program because the discounts really start to add up on products like Start9 servers and Ridge Wallet. All right, so let's dig into this. I wanted to when – I, when I wrote this article, I had thought about actually just reading the article, kind of doing a, a, a Guy Swan uh, Bitcoin Audible type with it, just read that article and put it out as like a, a short version podcast. And then this hole in the schedule popped up, and I'm like, you know, I'd rather go deeper into it and explain it at a higher degree because the article really is just here's what to do, and the why is more like this is why you would pick the gold standard over the silver standard or the the, the silver standard over the bronze standard or what have you. It doesn't really go deeply into the whole purpose of Bitcoin being that it can be self-custodied. The history of banks and banking 
and all the things that can go wrong, even with the banking system, and then comparing the, the crypto exchanges today of something similar or analogous to the wildcat banks uh, of the 1800s. And when I read to you a particular little excerpt on what wildcat banking was, I think you'll find it really interesting if you compare it to things like, oh, I don't know, FTX and them going broke and not having the money they said that they would have. So I wanted to be able to cover that. I also wanted to talk about why banking is not as secure as, as many people think that it is. And I want to talk about why do people trust banks, including some of the good things about banks. And I want to talk about, well, why do we have banks? What is the purpose of a bank? And how do we replace that function of a bank with our, our Bitcoin, with wallets, with nodes, etc.? How do we become our own bank? And do we really become our own bank for all things or only for some things? And the answers are we can become our bank for everything, but maybe we don't want to. Maybe we're still going to use the banking system and the Bitcoin systems, but we're going to use them separately. And we're going to stop trying to put these two things together. Treating Bitcoin like you treat dollars and treating how you hold Bitcoin like money in the bank is a thing that was supposed to mean it was you could rely on it. Those two things don't go together. You're really driving a square peg into a round hole. And you, what you end up with isn't a square peg. If you've ever thought about that phrase, if I really do push a square peg in a round hole, I probably turn the square peg into a round peg. Like as it goes through, it's cut like a cheese grater sort of type of thing. And we, we really, really don't want to do that. And again, guys, if you're on Facebook or Rumble, I should be able to, well, I don't know if I'll be able to see your comments on Rumble. I'll have to sign in, and I, I'm not signed in on this computer, and i got to keep rolling because I'm live. So I'll do my best for you. Facebook, I should see your comments come through down here, though. All right, so let's start off with where did banks come from? How do we get banks? And banking actually has an incredibly fascinating history, and I'm only going to talk about three versions of it today, and there's way more than that. But some of the first banks, if you want to think of them as banks, they were state-run, state-controlled, and they were run by, like, the pharaohs of Egypt. And, and what ended up happening is people would be given a daily grain allowance. That was one of the things that came with being a citizen. Rome had this, too, by the way. I don't know if Rome had the kind of banking system I'm about to describe, but if you were a Roman citizen living in Rome proper – you had a certain amount of grain allocated you per day. We make sure we feed the population so they don't revolt and kill us all. And so we think of these very authoritarian regimes, empires, uh, pharaoh-based monarchies and stuff, and think like they could just have complete control over it. Well, yeah, they had complete control over everybody as long as everybody was reasonably happy. You know, like things could be better, but they could also be worse kind of mode. When you get enough people pissed off and they feel like they're not going to make it tomorrow anyway, that's when rulers get, you know, their heads cut off. So one of the ways that you helped the breads and circuses whole thing was you better have the bread. You better have the bread and then you can have the circuses. So the bread was grain. And not everybody used all their grain. Not everybody needed all their grain. Some people had their own sources or what have you. So eventually you would have this grain storage facility and maybe somebody would take a grain bill, basically an IOU for grain and say, well, I'll take my grain in the future. 
Maybe I'll need it in the future. I don't want to give up my ration. And then something funny started happening. People started realizing, wait, I have a bill for X amount of grain. Now, it has a certain amount of value in our society. So people started trading the grain bill because whoever had the bill was a bearer instrument, paid to the bearer on demand one basket of grain. So people started saying, well, look, it's got the Pharaoh's signet, you know, seal on it. So if I'm selling this thing and this person doesn't have gold, then that grain bill is as good as money in the bank. And then all of a sudden you had these notes that could be used to purchase and exchange for other things because I had a set amount of grain I could get. And these authoritarian regimes, one thing they were good at is punishing criminals. They were really good at it, really, really good. Sometimes you punish the wrong one, but when you get the right one, well, he damn well gets some punishment. And so you're thinking, well, counterfeiting, and people did it. But if you got counterfeiting, you got caught doing that, you got a really horrific death. You just go in the prison or the dungeon, you got a really horrific death. Counterfeiting historically has been an incredibly vile level of punishment. So we had this going on. But, you know, who doesn't get punished is the, is the pharaoh or the pharaoh's men or what have you. So they started realizing, wait a minute, like the odds that all these bills will all come back are pretty low. Some of these bills have been out for years now. Maybe we can make some more bills than we have reserves. And sooner or later, that would fall apart, and you'd have to rebase things and come up with new banking systems. That, one of the earliest banking systems, though, was basically based on grain bills. This isn't really a history of money. There's all other sorts of money, like the, the giant rocks with the hole in the middle on the islands and stuff. That's not a banking system. It's a monetary system. This is a banking system we're talking about. Another one was international banking. You know, if you had a grain bill for the pharaoh in Egypt, you know, you might not be able to go to someplace like Turkey or England and do much with it. Because the person, even the person trusted, you know what? I think that's authentic. And if I go to Egypt, I'll get a basket of grain. Doesn't really do me a lot of good in London or Wales or something, right? So... We needed an international banking system. Now, this had to not be based on something like grain. This had to be based on something like silver or gold. So the, the inventors of modern international banking, you've probably heard of, the Knights Templar. And so it was common at the time of the Knights Templar that people would go from places like England or Spain or what have you and journey to the Holy Land, go to Jerusalem and see the Holy Land and experience the Holy Land. But you, you might think about the fact that a person who did this at, at this time, these hundreds of years ago, well, they probably were not a beggar or a peasant. They were people of means. They had significant wealth. You, have, you think about the, the distance of that journey. Even today, like airplanes and passports, are still a significant undertaking to go spend a week in Jerusalem. Well, go spend a week or more likely a month in Jerusalem. At this time, you had to travel over a thousand miles on these primitive roads, you know, on a horseback or a carriage, if you're lucky, often on foot. And so there's a whole delta of time between leaving, let's say, your comfy little noble establishment in Wales and getting to Jerusalem, where these folks called thieves would come along and take your money. So what the Knights did is they set up in Jerusalem and in these host countries and interim locations, banks. And what that bank meant is you could come in there with a receipt 
and present your receipt that you deposited X amount of gold when you left England, for instance, and that you need some money. So they would update your receipt and they would give you small amounts of your own gold back for a fee. Then when you got to Jerusalem, you could get enough for your time there. And as you went back, you would take it out as you needed. And then if there was any balance due left when you got home, you would close the books. This worked dramatically well, and it made the Knights very, very, very wealthy. And we, it, most of us probably know the story of Friday the 13th and then and, and, and the Knights all being killed and what have you. And there was some treasure they had. Well, what they had was an incredible wealth system in this, in this international banking. So while the Knights went away, the concept of being able to go from one place to another and have access to your funds didn't. And I'm telling you that less for the historical significance of the Knights Templar and more to understand why do people use banking. So why would we use a bank to do this? Well, we could have our money stolen. So I want to have a way to have my money secure but available to me when I need it. And I also need a method of payment. So the reason that I, well, I would get to a certain waypoint, you know, and say, hey, I need a couple ounces of gold is I need to pay for shit. And I probably couldn't go in there and give them my, my receipt. Like the Knights were pretty not big on the whole transferring of receipts because you had to kind of match up with what was known about you when you went to change your money. And that way somebody couldn't just like bump you on the head, kill you, take your receipt and run by and get their money from the Knights, right? So you had to have a payment method, and that was getting your cash back and being able to spend it. But you also wanted your money secure until you needed it. So by having multiple locations, we came up with a method of payment. Of course, today we use payment methods like credit and debit cards. So we're using that as a payment method through the banking system. The other kind of bank that I wanted to talk about, though, was regional banking system, and specifically what were known in the United States as wildcat banks. And the reason I want to talk about this is more, oh, let me read this to you. This is right from Wikipedia. I have a link in the show notes today. Wildcat banking was the issuance of paper currency in the United States by poorly capitalized state chartered banks. State chartered, by the way, chartered at the individual state level, like Texas or Arkansas or Pennsylvania. Um, these wildcat banks existed alongside more stable state banks during the free banking era from 1836 to 1865, when the country had no national banking system. States granted banking characters readily and applied regulations ineffectively, if at all. Bank closures and outright scams regularly occurred, leaving people with worthless money. So they still had the, the bill, the bank note, but it wasn't worth anything anymore. Operating in remote locations with limited or absent financial infrastructure, Wildcat banks supplied a medium of exchange in the form of bearer notes that they issued on their own credit. So they decided, they said, here is, we're going to issue credit and we are our own creditor. We, we, we guarantee that we are legit. Got it? All right. These notes were formally redeemable in specie, i.e. gold or silver coin, but typically collateralized by other assets such as government bonds or real estate notes or occasionally by nothing at all. Hence, they carried a risk that the bank could not redeem them on demand. So they really started to fall apart when, like, you know, you'd have, like, this, this claim mentality, people going out and silver mining or gold mining or something like that, and these towns would spring up, and everybody would start doing business using the bank currency, 
right? People got paid in the wages and people paid for rooms and stuff. Well, is that little settlement maybe if that whole mining claim gamble or whatever brought people there in the first place started to fall apart and people began to abandon it, well, people would want to cash their shit in before they left. And when enough people cast their shit in, the whole bank collapsed. Because if you give an entity like a bank the ability to issue credit to itself beyond its reserves, it will. And we've seen that historically over and over and over again. But doesn't that sound like crypto exchanges? Isn't that motivation to get your freaking Bitcoin off the exchanges? Doesn't that motivate you in the slightest? Hearing the description of wildcat banks and how they failed, doesn't that kind of put you on alert? That that sounds an awful lot like how FTX was run. No actual reserves, poorly regulated, if at all. State charter. It gives money to the state, so the state's like, hey, bro, go on. Now, today, yes, we're talking about securing your Bitcoin and how to do it and why to do it and the risk of holding your Bitcoin on exchanges. But before we even talk about the risk of your Bitcoin sitting on an exchange, let's talk about the risk to your money that's in the bank that you think of as being very safe. Let's start off with, well, why do people think banks are secure places to hold money? Why, why do we, in general, as a population, feel like, you know what? My money's safe in the bank. It's, it's good there. I'm not worried. We probably don't wake up every morning and go log into your online banking account and make sure your money's there. We just assume our money's there. We don't really worry about anything. Nobody tends to worry about anything until they try to spend money that they think they have and the payment doesn't go through. Well, was the phone line down? Did the bank's merchant account provider have a problem or did I spend money I didn't know? Is my account locked for some reason? Was there a security risk? We don't really, then we worry. But up at that point, we're just like, chill, man. That's why I have a saying. It's as good as money in the bank. Well, number one is that modern banking in general works very well. For all of the, the, the venom and hatred that I will throw at the bank oligarchies of the world and the giant banking families and the central banks, the system works. It generally works the way that it's advertised. You put money in the bank. When you go to spend it, it's there. When you go to withdraw it, it's there. You write a check, assuming there's, there's money in your account to back the check. When the other party cashes the check or deposits the check, it works. When you go to the store and you take out your debit card and you go to pay Target or go to pay the gas station or whatever, it works. The very fact that it usually works gives people confidence. And we've had it with us and working in its current form for a long time. If we go back to the 20s and 30s, the banking system looked very similar. But our modern banking system with credit cards, debit cards, check accounts, all of this stuff, well, it goes back to the 50s and 60s as the credit card payment systems got rolled out and all. But that's 70 years. So people are comfortable because it generally works and it has for a long time. Many people, the banking system that we have today, it's basic form. You didn't have online banking, but it's basic form existed for their entire life, the entire time they've been alive. Very few people are older and alive today as a percentage of the population than how old the modern banking system is. Number two is FDI insurance covers about 100% of deposits for the average person. So if you're a really high net worth individual um, and you keep a lot in cash in the bank, then you might exceed the limitations of FDIC insurance. And what FDIC says is there's money 
that all the banks pull their insurance premiums into. And if your bank goes broke, I almost 125 or 250,000 now, whatever it is, they will give you the government will act as an insurance company and give you your money back. And this in general works and has worked where it's been necessary. So people feel comfortable because their deposits are insured. Now, if everybody goes bust at the same time, there's nowhere near enough money in that, that slush fund to cover the balance due. But people feel like, well, my bank going broke doesn't mean all the banks are going to grow. So they feel good about the insurance. Schools teach us to use banks and that they're safe from early childhood. In the 1980s, I remember the school that I went to. There was two reasons for this. One is the programming. It's always been helping us as little kids in second grade set up a bank account. But what they told us to do was, I talked about this before on the show, but to bring our pennies in. And then we would deposit the pennies and we'd have a bank account and we would see how it works. Well, the real reason for that was there was a copper shortage going into the early 80s. And in 1982, we changed the copper penny into the zinc penny with copper coating. And they were trying to get pennies back into the banking system because there was a penny shortage. But I, I watched this whole propagandization of how great banks are go through my entire career in school as a kid. I watched my son as he came up. He's in his 30s now to date it. I watched him come home with projects that involved bank accounts and how to, how to have a bank account, stuff like that. So we are, we are taught, just like mock elections, right, that it's your civic duty to vote and the bank is the place for your money. If you teach somebody something from the time that they're a child inside a system of contrived authority like our public education system, the majority of people in it are going to buy it and believe it and, and, and see it as valid. Um, Next, many services in our lives pretty much require a bank account. Honestly, if you want to buy Bitcoin for most of the larger exchanges, unless you have banking services to, to, to fund your fiat from, you can't even buy Bitcoin. Now, once you have Bitcoin, you're in a whole different world. But think of how many other things that you need a bank account to be able to do, or maybe you don't need it, but your life is just easier if you have a bank account. So much easier. Think about how to pay all your bills if you don't have a bank account. You have to take cash. A lot of places you can't send them or bring cash to them. So now you're going to buy a U.S. postal money order. They have like, and they've made it more and more the case that you're like, it's not required of you to have a bank account. Kind of like, like they did with vaccines, right? You weren't required to have a vaccine, but boy, your life was harder if you didn't with these passports and stuff like that, they, 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 that formula in many ways far predates that whole period of time that they have made it more and more difficult to live your life in an easy way if you don't have a bank account. So the fact that most people have bank accounts, they grow up being taught that they're good, their parents had them, and they make your life easier creates trust. And credit debit cards have protection built into them as well. We have had, probably from skimmers on gas tanks and stuff, we have had a couple times, my wife's uh, debit card in general, more than mine, somebody stole it, somebody used it, somebody charged stuff, but it's, it's basically a MasterCard. So you contact the bank and it's covered under your protection and it doesn't end up costing you any money. So between the FDIC insurance and then using the Visa and MasterCard, et cetera, payments network and having protection, if somebody gets access to your information, that makes people comfortable as well. And when you get into self-custody, you're going to see that you do give some of that up. 
You do give up that protection. You don't have a customer service line. But I also want to cover, like, why banking's not as secure as you think. I just told you all the great things about banking, right? Number one, state and federal governments can and do lock and seize bank accounts. So we think, oh, good as money in the bank. Well, that means so good that one bureaucrat can be pissed off about something you did at some point in time, make a case for it, make a phone call or send a, a, a piece of paper or an electronic communication of some kind to your bank, and you go in and they're like, Mr. Smith, I am sorry we cannot let you take money out of your account. We cannot let you put money in your account. Oh, your direct deposit? Yeah, that went through. That's interbanking. But it's it, you know, your paycheck from this week? Yeah, it's in there. No, you can't have it. This has happened to many people. And it's happened far more in the last 10 years than it did in the previous 20. It's becoming more and more of a thing. We saw it happen with the Canadian truckers, protesters, in Canada having their bank accounts locked. And in some cases, they weren't even protesting. There were people that gave five bucks. All of a sudden, their entire bank account is locked up. Who knows why they'll do it next? The point is, federal and state-level governments can have your accounts locked up, seized, confiscated. A friend of the show named John, he had an ongoing dispute with the state of Massachusetts over income tax. He was fighting it, following the system, saying, hey, I don't owe you as much as you say. Let's work this out. And one day they seized his bank account took the money they said he owed them, and said, yeah, we're good now, and there's nothing he can really do about it. You can file in court, but you're not going to get anywhere. So how secure is your money when you have an institution in a bank that will do whatever the government tells them to do? If, if, a, if a government official contacts your bank and says to lock your account, your bank is going to lock your account. And in many cases, they'll say, we can't tell you why. Often, it's because they really aren't supposed to, and often is they don't even really know. They can't tell you why because they just know we were told to do so. Well, why? I don't know. So we can't comment on it. That's what that actually means. Next, your holdings can be locked for lawsuits as well. So not just the state acting. So if I'm suing you for something and I think that you might try to dispose of your assets, then I can get orders from a court at times that will lock your assets up. And anything in a bank account is like the most visible, easiest thing to see. And a bank can pretty much lock up your funds at any time, for any amount of time, for any reason they want. Think about what happens when a person has their bank account locked up. Where do they go? What would you do? Let's say that you, you have a local bank in your city. You go down there and they say, we're sorry, Mr. Smith, uh, your funds are locked. What are you going to call the police chief or the sheriff's department? What, do you, what are they going to do? You can call the FBI, the ATF. They're probably the ones that ordered it. What would you do? Who would you go to? What recourse would you seek? And what generally happens in these cases is either the, the hold is because the government says the money is owed to the government or to somebody suing you, and the funds are seized and used to dispose of the debt that was inferred upon you. Or eventually the bank says, here's a check. Good luck cashing it, by the way, since you can't get a bank account anywhere now. Uh, here's your money. Bye-bye. And you can't have an account here anymore. So how secure are banks really? Now, let's talk about crypto exchanges. Everything I said that's a risk in a bank account is also a risk in a crypto exchange if your crypto exchange is 100% fully legitimate. 
They're not using phony pretend backing. They're not doing yield farming. They're not doing any of the FTX shit. It's Coinbase. And Coinbase really does have the reserves that it says it has. I don't know if it does, but let's say that it is. You, you don't think that if Coinbase gets a, an email from the United States federal government that says Bill is a bad boy, lock his account up, they're not going to do it? You don't think Coinbase has locked people out of their own accounts? You don't think that's ever happened? You don't think anybody's ever tried to withdraw their Bitcoin from Coinbase? And Coinbase is like, eh, this ticks a box that we're concerned. And maybe eventually they do, but they might be go two weeks waiting to be able to take their own money out. Like, you don't think that all that stuff happens. So all the things that can go wrong in the banking system on a licensed registered exchange, doing things by the book legally and morally right, all that stuff can happen. But what happens beyond that? Well, first of all, you have significant counterparty risk. Now, in the banking system, you have that as well. But, I mean, when you are on an, a crypto exchange with very little in the world of regulation. Now, there's all kinds of regulation about who can buy from an exchange and what they have to provide to the – but there's very little regulation about how the exchange actually runs things behind the scenes, the part that actually would provide protection if it was done right. So the counterparty risk is much higher. What is counterparty risk? Ask someone who had an FTX account three weeks ago that thought they had money in it. When the counterparty failed, the risk became evident and their money is gone. It's gone and you're not getting it back. So the whole point of Bitcoin when we self-custody it is there's no counterparty risk. There's no other party that can do because all these things are counterparty risks. When I say the government could come into your bank account and say, lock up his money. That's a counterparty. It's not just that somebody somewhere in the chain did something wrong. Maybe they followed the rules, the rules where you don't get your money. Next, because there's very little regulation of the crypto exchanges, there's also an incredibly low probability of them ever being bailed out. Do you remember the 0809 financial crisis? So many banks were like this close to going under. And the United States government and the Federal Reserve worked together cohesively and bailed out all the banks. Too big to fail. Now, the banks, of course, would use the government central banking uh, incestuous relationship because the Federal Reserve banking system is private, but it's very entwined in a very fascist manner with the federal government of the United States. So the two working together, of course, they would bail out the banks because they're bailing out themselves. So what does Bank of America get by supporting a bank bailout? They get bailed out. Plus, they get a faucet of money in the future, right? But what does the United States government get? What does the Federal Reserve get by bailing out FTX? They get nothing. Yes, yes, I know. Democrats got a lot of money from FTX. So do Republicans, by the way. The Senate Leadership Fund, which is McConnell's super PAC, Got a shitload of money. Fun both sides as a game as old as time. Right? But so they got that money, but they don't get anything by bailing them out. They're not going to bail them out. Now that might be protection money. Maybe Sam, uh, Sam Bigman Freed, maybe he goes free. Maybe he doesn't actually spend any jail time because he paid that money, but they don't get anything by, they, they're not going to bail them out so that you get your money back. It, it's, it's not important enough to do, and, and the people that do the bailing out don't get the benefits. So they're not going to get bailed out. So if your exchange goes broke, you're getting nothing. 
The SEC will get its money before you do. The SEC is going to get money from FTX. I promise you they're not going to turn around and make depositors whole with it. And last, these exchanges continuously co-mingle funds. Now, this is a bad and often illegal accounting practice, but it's primarily done in the world of yield farming, where basically the, the, the person who thinks they're gaming the system is borrowing money at one rate and lending it back to traders at another rate and collateralizing it with some of their own crypto. And the, the problem really comes down to sooner or later there's losers, sooner or later enough of the bets are called, and sooner or later you realize there's not enough actual funds to cover all the bets. And things start to unravel and fall apart. That's exactly a big piece of what caused FTX to fail. The problem was bigger than I think anybody imagined, but it's, it's pretty much what happened. The, the, the truth of all like this yield farming and shit, you are the yield. You are the one assuming the risk. And you're assuming the risk of the counterparty in multiple counterparties. And so let's say you're like, but Jack, I don't do that. But does the exchange you're holding your Bitcoin on do that? You're, they're using your Bitcoin to collateralize their risk. This is the thing. You don't have Bitcoin when you are holding it on exchange. Let's just walk through a purchase of Bitcoin on Coinbase or CoinX or Gen I don't care where. You know, Bitrix, doesn't matter. Finance. You deposit a thousand bucks and you say, I want to buy Bitcoin. You buy a thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin for a thousand dollars. And there it is in your account. One thousand USD value in Bitcoin. I don't know what that is. Point one, point oh five, whatever Bitcoin. Right. So you're sitting there, you're looking at it. I've got Bitcoin. No, you have the promise of Bitcoin. You have a credit in your account to that number. Where did that number come from? What exchanges want you to believe is we have 0.1 Bitcoin set aside in your name right over here. It's on it's on this address, and it's, it's, it's allocated to you. That's not how they work. That's how you can have very fast transactions within the exchange, transferring from one account to another. It's not a Bitcoin transaction. They just change the accounting. Have you ever noticed that in like some of the exchanges – Let's see, if you and I are on the same exchange and I want to transfer some Bitcoin to you or some shitcoin to you, I can just put in your username and it immediately transfers and there's no blockchain action going on. There's no confirmation. That's because it's just an accounting change. If that's happening, then you know you don't have Bitcoin assigned to you. You have a claim on the pool of Bitcoin or pool of shitcoins being held by the exchange. That's what you have. When you withdraw it, then there's a blockchain-level transaction. And then it goes off that exchange into a wallet. Actually, it's only on the blockchain, but we're just going to say into a wallet that, that you control, somebody controls, that has full access to it, and no one else does. And that's when it becomes yours. So when I buy Bitcoin, like my favorite place to buy Bitcoin in small amounts is Strike. I use the Strike app. I deposit the money from my debit card, say 100 bucks, buy $100 worth of Bitcoin, send to my own wallet, done. And at that point, it becomes mine. Up until then, it strikes. Even though I like strike, it strikes. If it's PayPal, not PayPal, I'm sorry. If it's uh, Coinbase, it's theirs until you take it off the exchange. And we really need to understand that. So 
What is self-custody? What makes it self-custody? How far do you have to go to call it self-custody? And is there any downside? Um, self-custody means that you hold your keys and no one else does. And when we actually talk about keys, this is where things get a little gray. So if you have a, a Bitcoin wallet and you look in there and there's been enough transactions and you use a new address for every transaction, and there's, let's say, a hundred transactions on a hundred addresses in your Bitcoin wallet. There is a public address and a private key for every address. So if you have a hundred addresses, you have a hundred private keys and you can make transactional records of those. And, and those will let you claim individual addresses. But what we've done for simplicity is we create what's called a seed phrase, which is everybody says 12 words. Some wallets actually use more. Uh, a treasure like this one in my hand right here uses 18 words. Uh, but we have that passphrase. And that has access to all the keys for that wallet and brings it back together. If you hold those 12 words or 18 words or whatever it is, depending on what you're using, and no one else does, then you have self-custody. Now, we're going to get into the fact there's different levels of self-custody, different levels of privacy, different levels of security. But the minute you have that phrase, and nobody else does, the minute you can say that I have this much Bitcoin, but I also have, you know, this portion of it at this one address, and this one address is secured by this key, then you have custody. Until you have that, you don't have self-custody. And until you have that in absence of anybody else having it. So I don't know of any exchange that works this way, but you have, let's say you had an exchange where you have 12 words for recovery and you have a wallet inside the exchange. But if they have access to that wallet, it's still not self-custody. It's probably better, but it's not self-custody. So that's what makes it self-custody. Next, if you have self-custody, no party can take, lock up, et cetera, your Bitcoin. If anybody can say, I'm going to turn that wallet off, right? I'm going to turn that account off, or I'm going to take from that account, you don't have self-custody. Now, I don't really know of a way that you would have your own keys and have that be a case, but that would what you have to ask yourself. So if somebody could take money out of your Bitcoin or shut it off, you don't have self-custody. This leads me to, be, to, to, to ask the question, and I, I don't claim to know the answer to this right now, but is it ever possible to self-custody Ethereum? A hundred percent possible. I don't know that it is. You know, one of the things about Ethereum is that you don't have a new address for every transaction. In fact, they don't even refer to it as an address. They call it an account number. As soon as you call account numbers, now we're back into thinking like a banking a banking system, right? My understanding is that if the Ethereum Foundation were told this account number needs to be shut down, no matter what wallet you're holding it in, what form, that it could be shut down. If that's the case, then Ethereum cannot be self-custody. If you're holding Ethereum, would you be better off holding it in a wallet than on an exchange? Absolutely. That's not what I'm I'm just saying I don't know you can ever call anything that anybody can touch other than you self-custody. It's joint custody, I guess, right? Um, it's also, if you have true self-custody, determining exactly how much you have is difficult for a third party. Notice I did not say impossible. 
But let's say that you have your Bitcoin held in a software or a hardware wallet like this one, something like that. And you are buying Bitcoin from multiple exchanges and sending it to yourself. But you're also accepting Bitcoin as payments, et cetera. It's very possible that if the government did a deep dive and, and, and subpoenaed information about your accounts based on your transactional records, they could say that these addresses are most likely associated with you because Bill went on the exchange, he bought Bitcoin, he would draw to this address or sent to this address. I could have paid a bill, but it went to this address. And we see that frequently Bill was buying $150 worth of Bitcoin and withdrawing to this string of addresses. He probably has all that Bitcoin. But it would be very difficult to figure out, well, what about all these other addresses where, where Bill takes payments for his business, you know, Bill's Walnuts or something like that? So there's always a plausible deniability as well if you have self-custody. Like just because you bought the Bitcoin and sent it there doesn't mean it's your Bitcoin. If you're holding on an exchange, then it's very easy to know exactly how much you have because all it takes is one subpoena. And again, you have to realize it's not just the government. It's entities that work with and use the government. So if somebody wants to file a lawsuit against you and you're holding on an exchange, that's an asset that can be found under discovery is what they would call it in legal terms. Right? Under discovery of what does this person have since I'm saying they owe me. Where if it's in a wallet, even if they can try to – like you got to realize they're going to try to go into a court of law and explain to people that don't understand that you have access to these funds. And even if they could convince them, they still can't get it. But it's actually very difficult to pin down exactly who has what when we start looking at that level of things. And there is a downside. If you lose, let's say I have, I'm using this wallet. And let's say I lose this wallet. And let's say I was stupid and I didn't write down my phrase. My money's gone. My money is gone. There's no one to call to get it back. Let's say I'm really stupid and I put this in a safe. And inside that safe, I put on the back of it one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and that happens to be my PIN number. So when a person gets it, they're like, oh shit. Boop, 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 boop. Oh, and unlock it. Wow. Great. Send it to themselves. There's nothing you can do. And it because of the pseudo-anonymous nature, unless they were stupid and sent it to themselves on an exchange account with their name on it. It'd be almost impossible to prove that they did it. So you have no recourse. You forget your password. There's no customer service organization that you can contact and say, hey, hey, help me get my account back. No, you don't have an account. You have keys. Think of it this way. If you have the best safe in the world, and that's how to think about Bitcoin and the blockchain, it's the best safe in the world. You get the best safe crackers in the world, they can't get into it. They try to drill holes in it, put dynamite in it, blow the door off. The safe is not able to be opened. It's not able to be opened. And if you, if somebody were to start running random uh, calculations of the of the of the combination, they would take them longer than the universe has existed to get the right numbers by accident, right? And you forget you have a stroke and you forget the combination. Who do you call? Who, and the answer is you don't call anybody. There's the safe. We know it exists. We can even look up a record, a ledger that says how much money's in that safe. Can't get inside it. 
And since it's cybersecurity, right, since it's secured by a blockchain that's designed to be the most secure network that's ever existed, we're never getting into that safe. We can't even transfer the safe because the safe is basically the safe disintegrated. And we have to bring and the way we get the safe back is we put the 12 words in. Because you have to understand the words that back up this hardware wallet. I don't need another hardware wallet exactly like this one to get the money back. I just need the words. That's all I need. And then with that backup, I can restore. All right. Next, let's talk about what forms of self-custody there are. Now, in my article that you can read that goes deeper into the details, I refer to them as the bronze standard, the silver standard, and the gold standard. And I honestly feel like I said that I could probably call it silver, gold, and platinum. And But I, what I want you to understand is regardless of what I call them, this is not an industry term. It doesn't mean anything beyond this discussion today, right now, for this time. It's just something I made up to help people kind of get their head around, well, silver is better than bronze and gold is better than silver. And understand the difference. So software wallets are what I called in my article the bronze standard. A software wallet is something like Coinami or Exodus or what have you. And this is simply where you download a piece of software or an application onto your computer or your mobile device. And now you, you, you write down that 12-word phrase and you secure it somewhere safe. And now you have that device. And that device is where you receive Bitcoin to and where you send Bitcoin from. Now, I keep alluding to this, and I, I'm hesitant to even discuss it in a really basic show like today, but I think it's important to understand your Bitcoin is never in your wallet. I have no Bitcoin inside this Trezor Model T Harbor wallet. There's nothing in here except information that accesses the blockchain with my private keys and lets me sign and, and verify transactions. And a way to understand that is, let's say you put up a security camera at your front door, something like a ring camera. And then you go to the, the provider of the camera's website and you download an app. And now you have that app on your phone. And Amazon comes and drops off a package. And you get a notice, so you pull it up and see, is my package there? And the camera comes on, and you're looking at your package. And a porch pirate comes, and he's going to steal your package. And you see him pick it up. So you get on the thing, you better put that down, or my dog is going to eat your face off or something. And he either runs away and keeps it, or he drops it. But for this analogy, was the package or the porch pirate in your phone? Was it in your phone? You would never even say that it was in your phone, right? Was the camera in your phone? No, the camera was a device that accessed information, and, the, and your phone, your app, your wallet allowed you to visually see it and to communicate back and forth, right? You would never think that the, the picture, the thing that's in the picture is in your phone. The picture is a representation of the thing that somebody took a picture of. That's how Bitcoin wallets work. Bitcoin wallets are just a GUI, a user interface, a graphical user interface that allows you to interact with the blockchain in a simplified way so you don't have to sit there and type in a 9 million long letter string for each transaction, right? <laughs> Pretty simple. Uh, and a software wallet being that bronze standard. The, the thing about that is, so you have your phone, right? And you have your software wallet. 
you're actually really secure in a lot of ways of looking at it at that point. The federal government cannot be sure that you own the Bitcoin that you own. They can't, like, go into your phone and take it out. It doesn't work that way. They would have to get through the encryption of the wallet itself to get inside the wallet, though that can be done. Um, but the risk is actually the device itself is always connected to a network. It's either on a Wi-Fi network when you're at home or it's connected to the cellular network while you're out and about. So there's potential to get a piece of malware onto your device or your computer at your desk and do things like log your keystrokes and eventually be able to figure out, well, what's the password to the wallet? Uh, hack into the computer, have the password. So basically, like just like having a tech has remote access to your machine, except you don't know what's going on. And eventually they could get in your wallet. Once they're in your wallet, they can just start sending the money anywhere they want to. And there's been people who have seen it happen and like open their wallet and watch transaction or because usually they don't take it all in one place. They spread it around and you'll watch like a tenth of a Bitcoin at a time. Just go away until you have nothing left. It's happened to people. And that risk is both somebody physically getting their hands on the device or somebody gaining electronic access to the device. And the electronic access is particularly risky because most of us have our computers, our phones connected at all times. So, so that's the risk there. Otherwise, the only other real risk is since you're using somebody else's wallet, like an Exodus or Coinami, and you're using their node, they can pretty much figure out whose addresses are whose to a fairly reasonable degree of certainty. But but that, but it's 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 so much better if you got a software wallet and that's all you did, especially if you're somebody holding ten thousand dollars, five thousand dollars worth of cryptocurrency. I'm not that concerned for you. I am concerned for you walking around with it on your phone. If you leave your phone somewhere and you happen to leave it unlocked, right? Or somebody finds out what your passcode is to your phone because they watch you over your shoulder and they get their hands on your phone. What are the odds that most people, that even though their pass their passcode for their phone is one passcode, when they create a passcode for their wallet, they create a totally different passcode? Most people don't. So if I know your passcode to unlock your phone, then I can. And some wallets, unless you specifically tell it you want to do it, don't even make you put a passcode on your wallet. So those are risks if somebody gets to the device. The the next level, what I call the silver standard, is that we pair a software wallet, either one that comes with the manufacturer's hardware wallet or something like a third-party one, like Exodus works beautifully with the Trezor Model T. That's what I personally like to use. Um, I don't anymore, but we'll get to that in the gold standard. But that was my interim step was uh, Exodus with Trezor. And the reason I recommend it so highly is, one, it works perfectly, but, two, they have great customer service, and I can't be your customer service person. Now, what ends up happening is I transfer my money from my software wallet or I receive directly to my hardware wallet. And if I were to now fire up a computer or any device that's ever known about this with Exodus and, and the Trezor hardware wallet, I can look inside Exodus and switch over to my paired Trezor. And it says, hey, you have half a Bitcoin in here, let's say. Great. Woohoo. Nine grand, whatever it is right now. Seventy five hundred bucks, eight grand, whatever it is. That's what I have. But you can't do anything with it. You have to have the hardware wallet plugged in to do anything with it. 
But in this example, the silver standard, we're still using somebody else's node. This is not that big of a deal because we're always using multiple nodes anyway, right? But we do give away certain information with that. But I'm way okay with anybody being that is as far as you go. You get a hardware wallet and you use the hardware wallet company's interface or you use something like Exodus or anything that's designed to work with that hardware wallet. You're really safe at this point. This device will also have a PIN number. I shouldn't have to say this, but it shouldn't be the same as the PIN number for your phone. Because a lot of times people will find out a PIN number to a phone, but maybe not to other things. Right. So the same PIN number, bad. Different PIN number, good. So let's say I lock this up like I will as soon as this episode's over. I took it out just for the video of this episode, and I put it back in a fire safe somewhere. Let's say that somebody breaks into my house, and they, they're here long enough, the dog doesn't eat them, whatever, that they find the fire safe. And they go, shit, I can't get in this safe right now, but I'm just going to take it and run because I know the good shit's in the safe. They leave. Now they have my safe. They eventually break into the safe. They find this, and they happen to know what it is. Before they can do anything with this, they're going to need to crack the PIN number to gain access to it. It's not something you can just plug in and then find a workaround for that. There's also advanced strategies where you can create hidden wallets within a hardware wallet, but we're not going to get that into that today. So you can break your money up so you can have one hardware wallet but multiple hidden wallets inside of it. So even if somebody got to the surface, they wouldn't be able to get to the underlying things within it. But that can be risky because it's more to secure. Just know that. But what would be the odds that they would be able to get through all of the cyber hacking necessary before I knew they stole it? So even if they stole it and it took them, let's say, three weeks to finally, like with multiple attempts, crack the PIN number, which, by the way, if you, if you put the wrong PIN number in too many times, it will lock you out permanently. So you can't even brute force it. Well, let's say they figure out a way to do it. What are the odds I hadn't just moved the money by then? Because once somebody broke into my house and I determined my hardware wallet's missing, well, I'm just going to sweep those funds into a different wallet. Right? I'm going to get a new seed phrase. So if they ever got in, they're looking at an empty wallet. It's a reverse steal. I stole my own money before they could steal it from me. So it's incredibly secure. And we now have to have the hardware wallet present. The big thing is... There's a hole there. It plugs in a little USB-C cable, and it plugs in the USB into the computer. This is only accessing the network when it's plugged in. We refer to it as being a form of cold storage. There is no microwave, Wi-Fi, WiMAX, Elon Musk, Space Age, Internet networking computer, neural net, anything they can get access to this without plugging a cable into it. And if it's sitting inside of a fire safe or a floor safe or something like that, then that ain't happening. And for all intents and purposes, it doesn't exist to the network until I plug it back in. So if I want to move money off it, I need to plug it in to move money off it. This is the beautiful part. If you're using a good tool like, let's say, Exodus and this, even without your own node, you can generate addresses for this to take new transactions on new addresses without plugging it in. You can receive your ass off to your hardware wallet without anybody ever, without ever plugging it back in. 
but you can't get money off of it without plugging it in or without access to that seed phrase. Do you see why, like, I'm going to go on to why you might want to run your own node next. But if you will do that, there's very, it's very, very unlikely that anybody is ever going to be able to steal your Bitcoin. Now, you're going to need a copy of your passphrase, your, your 12 word, or in this case, 18 word uh, keyword phrase. It, again, I shouldn't have to say this, but this needs to be stored in a very secure location separately from your 12 word phrase. Because if I had your 12 word phrase, I don't need this. And that's what you need to understand. And that's why I took the, the time to use the camera analysis to tell you your Bitcoin's not in here. If you're Passphrase, it was four words, and it was dog, aquarium, fish, cap. If I had those four words, I have access to your Bitcoin from anywhere in the world, and so do you, and that's why you can't lose them. Now, I'm a real big fan of making a backup keyword phrase using washers and a stamping tool. There's a link on my Bitcoin tools page at thebitcoinbreakout.com of a video where a guy shows you how to do it. And I'm a big fan of breaking it into two. It's almost like multi-sig that we'll talk about in a second, like poor man's multi-sig, and storing half here and half there. So if somebody broke in my house, managed to find my wallet, they're screwed for the very reasons we said. But if they find your passcode, they don't need your wallet. right? Not your passcode. If they find your key phrase, they don't need your wallet. Well, if they find half a key phrase, that's pretty much useless. And there's, there's other ways and strategies people use with, like, I give you half of my phrase, you give me half of your phrase, et cetera. And so there's some risks to that, too, that I want to talk about here in just a second. But that is your silver standard. And I, that's why I almost want to change my own terminology to, to silver, gold, and platinum. Because that's pretty, that's pretty golden as far as I'm concerned for controlling your own destiny. The top way to do this, though, is you have a hardware wallet and you run your own node, and then you run a wallet that's connected to that node like something like Zeus, and you have total control then. That's what I would consider the, the, the highest level of self-custody. Now, there's a couple reasons you might want to do this beyond the fact that it, it's in some ways more secure. The, the first reason is privacy. So if you're running your own node, then you have access to your nodes records, but all anybody else can see is the public blockchain. So you don't have somebody that could be, could have a, a summons sent to them and said, we want no more information about these addresses. Uh, can you tell us who in your customer database uh, or you know, what email address might be associated with the wallet? So it's a little bit more private. It's not that much more private though. One of the big tools it gives you, though, is the ability to manage by UTXO, which simply means your addresses. Now, the reason you might want to do this is that the federal government and the IRS say that in any tax year, that when you sell Bitcoin or spend Bitcoin and create a taxable event, you can either manage by first in, first out. In other words, this is the worst way to go. The oldest Bitcoin you have, the longest time in the past that you bought Bitcoin, that's the price you have to use until that Bitcoin's gone, and then you can go it forward in time, first in, first out. Um, however, they also give you the option to, to report taxes by UTXO. So let's say that I had Bitcoin I bought in 2013, Bitcoin I bought in 2014, 2015, 
And let's say I bought some Bitcoin when it was $50,000. Let's say I had a bunch of money to make this really obvious why you'd want to do this. And I bought a whole Bitcoin for $50,000 near the top of the market. And for some reason, I need to, I need 18 grand, whatever Bitcoin is today. I need it bad. I got to sell some Bitcoin. If I have my own UTXOs and I can determine where that comes from, I can sell the Bitcoin that I bought at $50,000. And if I sell it for 20, so it's up to 20, then I can take a $30,000 loss. Okay, I can take a $30,000 loss on that transaction. If I were to put Bitcoin in there that I bought when it was $1,000, I'm going to have to pay tax on a $49,000 gain. It's very difficult without running your own node and without running a wallet like Zeus. As far as I know, if somebody knows of a, a more consumer-friendly, not require your own node wallet that makes it easy to manage by UTXO, let me know, and I'll add it to my Bitcoin tools and make that notation. Um, but it's very easy to do with Zeus. You can literally pick the addresses and see when they were created and say, these are the ones that I want to spend which I think you'd be able to stand up to any IRS audit with that because you would know more than the people you're talking to. And it's their rule. And you're like, well, I want to be clear. This is not gray. This is black and white. You're following their rules. This is what the tax code says for now. The other reason is you're helping secure the, the Bitcoin network by running a node. Uh, you can verify for yourself the current state of the blockchain. I, with the hashing rate being where it is, the number of miners, the number of nodes out there, this is not as a big a deal as it was in, let's say, 2011, but you're still doing that. So you get you get to participate in the network as a node, not just as a user. And so I think that's valuable as well. There's some other options you have and why you might use them. There's what's known as multi-signature and specifically two of three. So... We've already talked about how you have 12 words. Well, imagine you have 24 words, and one goes in one line and one goes in another line. So basically you have a double passphrase to unlock a given Bitcoin uh, series of addresses. So you can do that completely on your own, and then that is a lot like taking your passphrase and splitting it in half, except it's even more secure because they're both 12 words or 18 words. And that's useful because now I've stored one passphrase here and one passphrase there, and if a bad guy gets one, it's useless. He still needs another one. He still needs to guess the right atom in the universe. That's how. That's what the odds are. The odds of guessing a 12-word passphrase are about like picking the right atom out of the known universe. It's that huge. So he still needs the other one. If you lose one, you might as well have lost both of them. Because it's that huge for you, too. See, this is that risk, this offset. So there's services out there like CASA. You can find out more about those at keys.casa, where they will provide a multi-signature backup for you. You still have complete access to your funds at any time if you have both phrases. And remember, if there's not a problem with the wallet you're using, you don't need the backup phrase. You have the wallet. The backup phrase is an emergency redundancy. A very, very important one, because when you need it, you really need it. But what they would do is we're going to have phrase one, two, and three. That's how we're going to call this. Any two can unlock the funds. I get phrase one. I get phrase two. CASA gets phrase three. If I lose one, 
As long as I can come up with one of them and prove my identity, they provide me the other one, I have access to my funds. They never have access to my funds. They just have custody of one of my keys in a two of three key strategy. Why would we do this? You might do this just to protect yourself because you don't trust yourself with two phrases not to lose one. You might do this in some sort of a corporate arrangement or what have you. So partner one has the phrase, partner two has a phrase, and a custodian has a third. The most common reason this is done is, one, just additional security. People feel more comfortable. But two is for retirement accounts like IRAs. So custodial accounts for IRAs. This is kind of an in-between. So if I have an IRA and I have it with Fidelity, it's like having a bank account in a lot of ways. Fidelity has access to freaking everything. You can do a self-directed IRA with crypto or Bitcoin, but there's certain paperwork that has to be filled out the right way with every I dotted and T crossed the right way every year. And usually if you don't do it, nothing bad happens. But if something bad happens, like they get mad and want to know what you're doing, it can be very bad. You don't ever want somebody from the government asking questions, right? So what a lot of people would prefer to do is use a service like Choice, Choice IRAs, and they can hold Bitcoin in their IRA, and they can still hold their own keys, and you could still withdraw that Bitcoin, spend that Bitcoin anytime you want. But Choice has visibility into the addresses inside the account. And so they would, as, as, as a registered security, right, or a registered uh, account provider, tell the federal government, Bill took $1,000 out of his Roth IRA. And it's up to Bill to say, hey, yes, I did, but it's a Roth. And so I can take out money I've contributed. I just can't take out any interest. And I've contributed more than that and fill out the right paperwork. And, and that's okay. Or, yeah, I needed it. I spent it. Here's my interest and penalty in my tax year. Like you're still so if you're going to do an IRA, you're still going to have that oversight by your provider, your account provider that says to the government, everything's kosher here. He's following the IRA rules, but yet you haven't given them the ability to lock your funds up. They can't lock your funds up. Even if they were to close your account, the government just said choice. You know what? Close Bill's account. Doesn't matter. You still have your keys. You still have access to your coins. There's nothing they can do. And yet you have a redundancy. Let's say one way you would use this in a will for probate. You give your heir a passcode, and then your, your custodian of the other phrase is told, here's the will, here's the individual, you can give them the second phrase. That's another way that would be done and used. Um, and it's often used with software wallets and cold devices like a hardware wallet. People will just set up their own multi-sig. Again, just think hard before you do something like that because it gives you two pieces of information you need to, to, to retain. In the end, though, Bitcoin without self-custody is probably worse than, than dollars in a bank. It's probably worse. And it's worse because, yes, the government or a bad actor can determine a great deal of information about you if they gain access to your financial records. Yeah? Okay. But if somebody just knows that a Bitcoin address is your address, they can see all history in and out of that address forever. It's one of the things we give up using Bitcoin with a public blockchain rather than a privacy coin like Monero. 
right? And we do that because of all the other great things that Bitcoin lets us do. And we also do that because it is pseudonymous, meaning that as long as I'm not stupid, it's really difficult to know exactly what I have. And if I'm using good, good techniques, which is you want to pay me in Bitcoin. So either my payment system or I manually generate an address and say, send me the 50 bucks for MSB to this address and you send it to that address. The only thing you should be able to see at that point is that you sent me $50, which you already know. And then all you see is on that address is 50 bucks. Now, if I ever send off that address, you can see what address it went to. Do you know it's mine? Did, did I buy new tires for my car? Did I consolidate onto an address that's holding a higher balance? Did I pay my lawyer? Did I swap it for some shit coin? You don't know. You're not sure. All you know is money in, money out from that one address. And if every transaction in has a new address, it's very, very limited, but it's still there. If you're holding on an exchange and you don't have self-custody, you also have that public record of transactional activity going on. Yeah. You have that exposure on the public domain blockchain without the benefit of self-custody. So the thing that we're giving up to use Bitcoin in that you can associate an address number with an individual we're giving up the trade-offs that make it worth doing that. We're giving up that complete control because, again, I'm back to I'm holding my Bitcoin silver standard using a software wallet and a hardware wallet, not even running my own node. You associate me with these accounts. You make a great case and say, Jack Spirico has four and a half Bitcoin sitting right there. Okay, fine. Take it. We're going to seize it. Go ahead. Good luck with that. Where if it's on an exchange, once that information is used to backfeed to you, they can say, we think these are Jack Spirico's addresses or this Bitcoin or whatever is associated with Jack Spirico, lock up his account. And again, all these exchanges, no matter how much they believe in freedom and liberty, and many of them I think do, when they get a piece of paper that's official from the government that says they have to do it, guess what they're going to do? They're going to comply. Now, if it's a big ask, it's not specific to an individual. Like when the IRS said to Coinbase, we want all activity of everybody that did business with you for the last three years. Coinbase went to their legal department. The legal department said, nah, no. And then it required the federal government to get much more specific in the type of information they were able to acquire. But when the court said you do have to do this more narrowly defined thing, Coinbase went, here it is. Two years of every transaction over $20,000 that ever happened on Coinbase. All that information went to the government. So the government can get that information more difficultly when they want a class or group of people. It is harder. And the, the, the exchange might say no. I'm telling you right now, if you have a Coinbase account, a Gemini account, a Binance account, a Bitrix account, and they get a letter or a phone call or any kind of communication from a federal agency, and they say we want this information on this specific user's account that we know you have as a customer. They're going to shit that information in a heartbeat. Nobody in legal is going to go, I don't know about that. Bill's really important to us. He has like $500 in Bitcoin here. We got to protect. That's not going to happen. They're going to shit that information. And if they say, yep, that's the bill we're looking for, lock his freaking account up, then they're going to lock it up. And let's say that you're the wrong bill and they lock your Bitcoin up. It might take you years to prove that you're the you're not the bill that they're looking for. 
for them to unlock that. Who knows if they ever will. So I, again, I've always said this. I don't care where you buy your Bitcoin. I really don't. Just buy it and get it off. Get it into self-custody like we talked about today. Because when you're holding in an account and you're holding Bitcoin that has certain things that are publicly divulged, you have the worst of both. Instead of having complete control, you have limited control and limited privacy. You have more privacy with your bank account than your Bitcoin address. There's no doubt about that. Because um, look at it this way. Let's say you were going to wire me money and I gave you a bank account number. And you could wire money into my bank account. Then what? You know you sent me the 100 bucks. Great. How much money is in my bank account? Who did I pay? Who else paid me? How much did they pay? You don't know. You have to have a summons, right? And, and what happens is a lot of these exchanges, you end up with a – when you do have an address, and they do, suit, they do uh, uh, say that, hey, this is your Bitcoin on this address, you end up using the same address over and over again. Some exchanges let you create new addresses. Some, some exchanges are better than others. But I just think you're taking a risk that you don't need to take. And again, if that exchange fails, your money's gone. And look at the sizes of exchanges that have failed. The people have said, no, nah, that's never going to fail. Look at, look at FTX. They had Mr. Wonderful, right? Kevin O'Leary. They had all these, these athletes and, 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 and megastars and celebrities and billionaires involved with them. Everybody saying how great they were. All this philanthropy going on, they're not going anywhere. <clears throat> Gone. How many people do you think lost a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, five grand, ten grand worth of crypto? And it was all they really had, and they were betting their future on it. And you know what? The majority of Bitcoin today is still held on an exchange. And that's sad. And I hopefully this will change your mind about that. With that, we've wrapped things up. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. If you did, remember you can always help support me by doing your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. That's right, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Uh, those of you guys that are catching me on the Bitcoin Breakout channel only, you may not know that I'm also part of a, of a larger thing that's been going on a lot longer, The Survival Podcast, like you see on my shirt right here. And uh, we do five shows a week, not just the one on Tuesday about Bitcoin. And we talk about all kinds of things uh, with self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. And one of the things we talk about a lot is um, taking care of livestock. And yesterday I did a show on small backyard livestock, like chickens and ducks and what have you. And what came across my desk today? A discount notice that the Incubu all-in-one automatic egg incubator is on sale for 150 bucks. Now, they've dropped the retail on it's like 180 Now it's on 150 But when I bought the first one, these were selling for 220 bucks. And I thought it was a great deal at $220. So that's 70 bucks less than what I paid for mine. It's a great incubator. It's easy to program because different birds have different numbers of days that the eggs need to turn before they stop. Humidity, and it's really easy. You just add water to the bottom of the tray. It's got everything in integrated in it. It works fabulously. I used it for a long time. I actually mailed it to a lot of different people because an incubator is something you don't use all the time unless you're somebody that hatches all the time. Uh, and we did eventually kill it. I'll tell you, ours did die, but man, it, it really, it probably had 10,000 miles of being mailed around the country on it when it finally died. And I used a little bit of a smaller one because I don't hatch as much now. But if I needed to hatch in quantity again, this is the one I would buy again. And you can find out about it at tspaz.com and all of my cool stuff is available at tspaz.com. One more time, Bitcoin episode. If you're not using the fold card 
you are wrong. My wife and I are booking our vacation uh, for next spring. We're going out to, uh, can't think of the area now, somewhere in California in like Northern Cal. Yeah, California, but it's a really cool, Mendocino? I think that's right. White, Northern wine country on the coast, beautiful, beautiful place. We're paying for all of our vacation rental with the fold card and earning a massive amount of stats back on the money we were going to spend anyway. If you are not using fold, go to the Bitcoin breakout right now. And up at the top of the screen, you will see where you can get more information about the fold card. Um, click on that. Learn about the fold card, including the ways that I game it. You can see an entire interview that I did with Jeremy uh, from fold. And we talk about all the ways to game it, to stack more sets. It's simple. And remember, I did an episode recently of Bitcoin Breakout where I said this is the time to stack sats. There will never be an easier time to stack sats than there is right now. And I can say that with 100% confidence. When I look at my fold card uh, cash back and I see that I have stacked over three and a half million sats this year since I got the fold card in August. I, I, I say to myself, Jack, if you spend the same amount of money next year, you're not getting three and a half million sats. You're going to get a lot less. When I look at how much I added to my Bitcoin stack this year by buying a hundred bucks here and $150 there, I know that's never happening again. It's not that Bitcoin's never been less. It's that it's not going to be much less than it is over the next year. This is the time. This is the, I call it accumulation trough. When we are in mid-cycle between the halvings, when we're in crypto winter, this is when to buy. And you know what pisses me off? You don't buy in crypto winter. And I mean you listening to me right now as the general audience. When Bitcoin is going gangbusters, you know, I do do affiliate, uh, referral affiliates for like Trezor wallets, Coinbase, Strike, etc., that's all on my Bitcoin tools page. And the stuff that I get a commission on, it says, right, I do get a small commission on this. When Bitcoin's 50, 60 grand last couple of years ago, I was getting dozens and dozens of referrals a week. Right now, I get one or two a week. And it's, it's not because everybody that listens to me already did it. Because when we go into another bull cycle, and we will, I'll watch those. Because I've watched this since 2013. Every time we're in a bull cycle, all my referrals go through the roof. Every time we're in a bear cycle, they all dry up. Nobody wants to get in. The time to get in is when you're in a down market. That's right now. Get in, start buying your Bitcoin, buy a little bit here, a little bit there. You know, large purchases linked to your direct deposit, stuff like that. I would recommend Swan. It's on my Bitcoin tools page. Little, you know, ad hoc purchases. Strike's probably my favorite way to do that right now. I'll give you one more hack before we, we, we wrap up on Strike. I said that on Strike, I'll deposit buy Bitcoin, and send Bitcoin to myself. That's not actually what I do. One of the coolest things about Strike is you don't have to have Bitcoin to send Bitcoin. You can go into Strike, deposit $50, and say send $50 of Bitcoin to this Bitcoin address, never buy Bitcoin, hit send, and $50 worth of Bitcoin shows up on the other side. You can do that with on-chain Bitcoin or Lightning. And so I actually stopped buying Bitcoin in Strike and started sending myself Bitcoin from dollars with Strike. And it takes one more level off of the whole account record thing. Just saying. Anyway, with that, hope you enjoyed today's show. 
Tomorrow we're going to be talking about preparedness, but we're going to be in the financial world as well. I'm going to have uh, Jason Schaller on, and we're going to talk about how living debt-free is a preparedness topic. Again, check out the Survival Podcast if you haven't already done so, and I'll catch you guys tomorrow with another episode. And next week we'll be back on the main uh, video streaming platform. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.